This podcast is supported by Americans for Medical Progress through the Michael D. Hare Fellowship, awarded annually to support projects that inform and educate the public about the critical role of animal research in furthering medical progress. The fellowship honors the late Dr. Michael Hare, a renowned board-certified laboratory animal veterinarian who dedicated his career to scientific and medical advancements and who is deeply committed to animal welfare and advocacy. In this sixth episode of LabRat Chat, Danielle and I had the opportunity to talk with Dr. Rudolph Bohm, the Associate Director and Chief Veterinary Medical Officer at the Tulane National Primate Research Center. Have you ever wondered about why monkeys are so critical to the field of biomedical research or what medical advancements they've led to that we benefit from on a daily basis for not only ourselves, but also our pets? Have you ever wondered what their daily life is like within an animal research facility, such as the Tulane National Primate Research Center? If so, then you're definitely going to want to listen to this episode from beginning all the way to the end. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy this sixth episode of Lab Rat Chat. Welcome to the sixth episode of Lab Rat Chat. That's right. We only intended to do five of these episodes, and here we are now in episode number six. So we've had a great overall response from everyone out there listening. But there's still so much more that we can talk about. So we just want to keep this thing going for as long as we possibly can. Which brings us to today's guest, who is with us from the Tulane National Primate Research Center. He's the Associate Director and Chief Veterinary Medical Officer. Welcome to the show, Dr. Bohm. And thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. We really appreciate your time. Glad to be here, Jeff and Danielle. So if you could, we always start out our shows with the guests just telling our listeners a little bit about themselves, about their background. And what made you interested in science and veterinary medicine and just describing your journey to get to where you are today? Sure. I think like a lot of my colleagues, I've wanted to be a veterinarian for as long as I can remember. But my the road to uh, specializing in laboratory animal medicine and specifically in non-human primate medicine was not a direct one. When I was in veterinary school, I did take electives in laboratory animal medicine. And while I enjoyed that experience... I wasn't immediately interested in working in laboratory animal medicine as a career because I knew that rodents make up most of the work. And I felt that I wouldn't have the opportunity to practice medicine and surgery in a laboratory setting. But I did like the idea of doing something that would benefit both human and animal health. So obviously, I was not as informed as I could have been. And because I didn't realize that uh, the practice of veterinary medicine and surgery can be done in laboratory animal medicine. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons that I always make a point to speak with veterinary students whenever I can about the field. And along those lines, our program here at Tulane also offers externships and rotations for veterinary students because we do want to make sure that they don't make the mistake that I did and not be informed about what's available in the field. So back to my history, you know, I went into small animal private practice and did that for a couple of years. And a friend I met in college who had heard me talk about how nice it would be to be in research and still be able to practice medicine and benefit animal and human health made me aware of a, a clinical veterinary position at what was then called the Delta Regional Primate Research Center, which is the Tulane National Primate Research Center today. And I'd remembered the center. I'd toured it during vet school, and I thought it was fascinating I also knew at that point that positions for veterinarians at primate centers were very few and far between. But I went for the interview and thankfully they hired me. That kicked me off on my new career and I'm still here after 30 years. But 
once I started the Primate Center, my enthusiasm just continued to increase because of the all of the technology that was available. The same so your, sort of your career in, um, in the lab animal industry labs, has pretty much strictly been with imaging uh, technology, primates, facilities available to treat that, animals. And so okay. th- those things weren't available to me in small uh, animal practice. So I actually got to do what I had intended to do, uh, which was practice veterinary medicine at a very high level. I got my board certification by the American College of Laboratory sure, Medicine. Sure. Six years and you know, later. we always hear about you know actually um, primates being you know ninety nine percent genetically identical to humans. I guess how accurate is this? What does that mean? Um, how does that sort of contribute to their use sense. in research? So, uh, kind of a roundabout way uh, to get into the field. So your career in the lab animal industry has pretty much strictly been with primates then? That's exactly right. Yeah. And so we have a few rodents here, but on the scale of most research institutions, 100 mice doesn't constitute a mouse colony. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Sure. Sure. And, you know, we always hear about primates being, you know, 99% genetically identical to humans. I guess, how accurate is this? What does that mean? How does that sort of contribute to their use in research? So you're right. It's true that non-human primates are phylogenetically very closely related to man. Rhesus, for example, share about 93% of their genes with man. And the similarities in anatomy and physiology make them excellent models for a variety of diseases. But even with that in mind, they comprise less than 1% of all animals in research and really more close to a half of a percent of all animals in research. And this is true for a number of reasons. One is that they're a scarce resource and only a few institutions have non-human primate research colonies because they require really specialized resources like specific veterinary expertise, specialized facilities for housing and conducting research, and teams of behavioral scientists to monitor and manage their environment and activity to promote psychological well-being. And so non-human primates should really only be used with a model that's particularly well-suited to answer the scientific question. And in general, other models, such as the rodents we just discussed, are used in preliminary studies to assure that the fewest non-human primates are used to answer the questions. As an example of this, uh, many years ago, we were looking at several vaccines for Lyme disease, and we had a Lyme disease non-human primate model. And there were actually 10 different candidate vaccines that needed to be tested. And so those vaccines were all tested in mice for safety and efficacy. And the best two vaccines were then used in the non-human primate. And this is kind of the usual paradigm for scaling up the use of animal models. So even with very few non-human primates used in research, their impact has been really quite significant. Yeah. And I want to touch on some things that you said later on in the show, just about the level of care that's required to take care of non-human primates. But before we get into talking specifically about the National Primate Research Centers, could we just tell our listeners a little bit more about why monkeys or non-human primates are so necessary for research leading to new medical advancements? I mean, you talked a little bit about it, but why at times you have to use a monkey over the mouse to accomplish what your research goals are? Like, What kind of disease models are you using monkeys for and things like that? I think our listeners would benefit from hearing some things of that nature. Yeah, as we just discussed, animal models other than non-human primates, such as rodents, are used extensively and are extremely helpful in answering many basic research questions, but their usefulness is limited because they are different from primates in significant ways. Some of the important differences include their lack of sophisticated brain structures, they have a less developed immune systems and motor skills, and their metabolism functions differently on a lot of different levels. In addition, non-human primates are long-lived compared to other species uh, used for research, which makes them very useful for diseases of aging 
obesity and metabolic disease. But to specifically answer your question about the types of diseases that we study, there's a very long list of diseases that have been routinely studied in the non-human primate model. In addition to studying disease in humans, the model is very useful for establishing data on normal biology and physiology. Some of the most notable categories of research include infectious disease and emerging infectious disease like HIV, AIDS, TB, and malaria, which are the three top infectious disease killers worldwide. And of course, recently Zika and presently coronavirus, which are emerging infectious diseases. Non-human primates have also been used in neuroscience. And I know some of your previous guests have described this in detail and other areas include metabolic disease such as diabetes, obesity, reproduction and pregnancy, organ transplantation. But in this field of organ transplantation, they're primarily used to study and prevent rejection of organs. And also diseases of aging like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, stroke, and immunosenescence or aging of the immune system. Are there any um, examples where maybe some research and findings from that have also helped benefit like our pets? Do any of the findings from non-human primates also translate into veterinary medicine? Yeah. And, you know, there's I know when we when you guys have talked about this on your other shows and when we talk about this in general, most people see this as what is a direct benefit to my pet from non-human primate research? And it's not as a direct cause and effect relationship like with pets, but certainly there have been lots of different advances that help non-human primates in the wild and conservation. And it also helps animals that are in research. So non-human primates used in research institutions have benefited directly from our research in, say, infectious diseases and controlled infectious diseases. And you've previously discussed the three R's, reduction, refinement, and replacement. And in our quest to achieve those in non-human primates, these in non-human primates and research, we've benefited non-human primates in research. So an example is a refinement of endpoints to studies. So in the early days of SIV pathogenesis, so SIV is a simian immunodeficiency model in the non-human primate, which mimics very closely HIV AIDS in humans. We used to want to follow animals out until they reached immunosuppression, so end stage that we could describe and characterize the disease as it occurs in humans. Once we'd done that in a few animals, then we could now cut the endpoints much shorter so that in a vaccine study, for instance, we will vaccinate an animal and challenge it with the virus. And we don't have to wait for the animal to get sick. We can end the study once we know whether the animal has been infected or not. So that's a huge refinement. And again, has minimized you know, pain and distress in animals subsequent to those original studies. So that's a real important thing to remember is that you know while sometimes we talk about a vaccine being developed for use in dogs in a dog study in non-human primates is not as clear-cut a road to that. But I will add one interesting fact. At Tulane, we have the Lyme disease model in the non-human primate, and we developed a much better test to detect Lyme disease in both humans and in pet dogs. And they're the, both the number one diagnostic test used right now. So it was that one actually did benefit pets <laughs> directly, which was probably the first time that we'd seen that happen. Something moved from primates to dogs. Yeah, that is interesting. We were learning about Lyme disease recently in school and diagnosing it seems like quite the challenge. And I don't know if they had discussed the test that you were describing, but if they weren't, hopefully that's something we could begin using in practice or at least learning about in school as well, because the challenge, the diagnosis of Lyme disease was pretty challenging, like I was saying. So that's great. Something that benefits pets, even in humans. I mean, unless you have that classic bullseye rash at the time of when you're at the doctor, you know, it's a doctor's pretty much not going to diagnose Lyme disease. I'm not a physician. 
So diverse to serve everyone knows. Maybe Disclaimer, I'm totally yeah. off on that. <laughs> but just from hearsay, people I know, what, what I've talked to other people about, that's kind of been the consensus. You have this goes to the One Health approach too, because it's exactly the same task that works in humans and it works for dogs because the engine that they're looking at and the antibody they're looking at is present in the bacteria, which infects both man and dog. So it's a nice crossover to bring species together. So real quick too, you had mentioned vaccine development and you mentioned coronavirus. And I know recently in the news, I've read some reports about you guys over there down in Tulane doing some work with the coronavirus and vaccine development. Could you tell us a little bit about what you all are doing in those efforts for helping prevent or treat coronavirus? Sure. One of the things we know is a certainty is that we're going to have emerging infectious diseases and those epidemics are going to come. We don't know when, but we know that they're going to come. Zika was the, the one that received a lot of notoriety in the recent past. This has become a, a public health emergency globally. So when we approach uh, one of these global health type crises, we first develop a model of the disease. And so in this case with coronavirus, first we have to figure out, will the virus infect non-human primates? And if it does, does it seem to have the same clinical outcome as it does in humans? And so the first step of this is to, of course, get our hands on the virus, uh, which takes a, a number of different permits from regulatory agencies. And then we would administer that virus in certain ways to non-human primates that would mimic what we think the transmission is in humans. And in this case, it's a little bit more difficult than sometimes in, in studies where we know more about the pathogenesis in humans in that really there are a lot of unanswered questions such as how is it transmitted and how long after infection is it transmitted how much virus is excreted. And so those are the kind of things that we can answer in animal studies that you can't answer in human studies because you don't know when humans are infected. And especially with coronavirus, it seems that you know people may be shedding virus way before uh, they're showing any signs or symptoms. So our approach is to look at a couple of species of monkeys, in our case, African greens and rhesus monkeys, and we'll administer the virus via different routes. And uh, we'll study uh, by taking samples uh, from animals, in this case, in minimally invasive ways. So we'll take blood samples, we'll do bronchovir lavage, we'll take fluid samples from the rectum, the oral cavity, and we'll process those samples to look for virus and look for the amount of viruses there. The veterinarians will look very closely at animals and follow their clinical progress, uh, noting that on sheets where we can score their clinical scores uh, so we can compare with other facilities. And then once we finish this study, we'll use those samples to start detecting levels of virus. And if it appears that from the clinical standpoint and from our assays, our diagnostic assays, this looks like a model, then and only then can it be used to study vaccines. And so first is the characterization of the model. Then you can use it to study treatments in vaccines. And it may be that some species of animals may be better. Some species of non-human primates like African greens may show more clinical signs than rhesus, but rhesus may have the similar immune response to humans. And so they may be better back for a vaccine study. So that's we're in the early stages just starting that now. And that's something that's going to take a while to, to develop the model and then eventually move into actually vaccine development, correct? I mean, we're talking, we're not talking weeks or maybe months, but I mean, probably a year or so probably is, I mean, timeline, I know you can't say for certain, but it's not like a vaccine's around the corner for people listening or for people that read those reports that, you know, vaccine development's begun or the development of animal models has begun. The actual development of a product is still far off, correct? 
Yeah, you're correct. And I think, you know, in times like this, people want to talk about how quickly we can do these things, but it takes time. And, and, you know, that has to do with uh, reproducibility. And our goal, especially from the animal care and use standpoint, is that we don't want to rush through in development of the model because then that essentially turns into wasting animals. If the data we get from those animals isn't what we need and we have to repeat experiments, again, utilizes more animals and, and goes against one of those three R's, which is reduction. You know, one of the things that we're doing with the other primate centers is we're coordinating these studies. And again, that leads to reduction in the number of animals being used because we're going to be less likely to duplicate studies. We'll be able to talk to each other about best practices and methods so that we also minimize morbidity and pain and distress in animals, improve our procedures. And so all this is happening in real time until recently with the Zika research has not been the case. Open sharing of data real early in the process has not normally been the case. So I think there's a real advantage to us being able to minimize the animals, the number of animals used, and to also improve the methods that we use in those animals to collect our samples. Yeah, that's awesome. That's great. All right. Well, now that we know a little bit more about non-human primates and why they're so critical to medical advancements, could you just please tell the listeners a little bit in general about the National Primate Research Centers, the history behind them, how long they've been around, why they were developed? And then could you also tell us specifically about the Tulane National Primate Research Center and your research goals or objectives there? The uh, National Primate Research Centers were founded in the early 60s as a network of seven what were then called Regional Primate Research Centers. And uh, they were formed because a group of forward-thinking scientists and politicians realized that uh, non-human primate research was going to be critical to solving some of the most important uh, research questions pertaining to human health. They also realized that most institutions did not have available funding and veterinary expertise, specialized facilities, and scientific resources necessary to maintain a, a research program in non-human primates. And so they decided to establish funding for the program to allow scientists from around the country to be able to do research at regional centers where their own institutions didn't have that capability. So the funding for the National Primate Research Centers are through is through the uh, National Institutes of Health, uh, and they're called P51 base grants. And they support the resources of the center. And so they support veterinarians, animal care staff, the behavioral staff, administration, and uh, facility services. The name of the program was later changed to the National Primate Research Centers to more adequately capture the reach of the centers as a national program. And today there are seven National Primate Research Centers, and they're all associated with a host institution. All of them, except for one, are associated with a college or university, private or public. And the seventh one is associated with a, a research foundation. Collectively, the centers house about 22,000 non-human primates. And all of the centers have scientists, which are associated with the center directly, or core scientists, and then Scientists from outside, which make the majority of the individuals that, that do work at primate centers, are called affiliate scientists. So approximately a thousand different research studies are done across the primate centers each year involving over 2,100 scientists. And uh, as an example, at the primate center, about 75% of our work is done in collaboration with scientists outside of Tulane. Particularly, uh, specifically Tulane, uh, we were founded in 63. And our research program early on was entirely limited to behavioral study. And since that time, our primary research programs here in infectious disease, we have 300 staff and faculty. The center sits on 500 acres of land. 
And as I said, our research program now is heavily invested in infectious disease and AIDS being the largest of our program, HIV AIDS. And uh, in addition, again, we've had programs in Zika virus, coronavirus. We also do uh, research with select agents. And people often ask, why do we need more than one or two National Primate Research Centers? And that is because each of the centers, as I said, we have 22,000 non-human primates among the centers and a lot of different resources. Any one of the centers alone could not keep up with the demand for use of the model and our facilities and the non-human primates. And while we duplicate research in certain areas, we each have our own areas of expertise. In the early days, the primate centers worked almost as seven separate entities. But in the last couple of decades, the centers are working very closely together, as I said, about the Zika research program and coronavirus research program. And we have uh, working groups that cross primate centers, such as breeding colony management, behavioral management, our occupational health and safety programs also cross over. So uh, we help each other a lot. And it is truly a, a national program and requires you know, the number of centers. We could argue that they really need more centers rather than fewer. Something that I'm always curious about, because I have I've worked in animal uh, research, but I've never worked with non-human primates. I don't know if you could talk a little bit about the care that goes into taking care of these animals and what like sort of a day in the life at the facility is like. So at Tulane, our, we have a population of about 4,700 non-human primates, six different species. Most of them are rhesus monkeys. And about 85% of our non-human primates live in large outdoor enclosures in social groups that mimic conditions in the wild. And many people don't envision this when they think about research institutions. But again, most of our animals are in social groups outside. And those constitute our breeding colony, which supplies almost all of the animals we need for research. The breeding colony is a source of, as I said, almost all the rhesus monkeys we use in our research program. And all of our breeding animals are specific pathogen-free, means they're tested a minimum twice a year for viruses that could cause confounds in research or could cause disease in humans. So we've eliminated those. All of our animals undergo our, are enrolled in our preventive medicine program. And that program has been established to ensure the health of animals. And so twice a year, our animals get physical examinations by veterinarians. They receive vaccinations, blood sampling for screening of pathogens. We do ultrasounds for pregnancy uh, during breeding and birth seasons. We apply microchips and tattoos for their identification, perform TB tests, treat them for parasites. And we'll take whatever other samples the veterinarian orders for their health and care. You know, we've often been told by physicians who visit that our animals have better preventive health care uh, than most of the humans on the planet, <laughs> which is true if you think about how many times, if you compare how many times I go to the doctor at least a year. Right. And so for the research animals in the breeding colony or the animals in the breeding colony, some research is allowed, but it's always minimally invasive, limited to blood sampling, and mostly is behavioral observation. But the other 15% of the animals in our colony are either animals that are in the hospital for treatment from the breeding colony or those that are enrolled on research studies. And those animals are all housed indoors in climate control facilities in either animal biosafety level two or animal biosafety level three containment. And social housing in the indoor facilities is a default, just like it is outside. Uh, we just have to work a little bit harder inside to accomplish that by designing our enclosures to include doors and panels so that animals can, we can open them up in different configurations. 
If an animal is required not to be housed socially, that has to be reviewed and approved by the IACUC. And in many cases, the justification for single housing on an experiment is temporary and only during certain phases of the experiment. For example, many years ago, almost any infectious disease you know, investigator would require that an animal be singly housed. But as we learned more about things and the importance of social housing, it became apparent that really prior to challenge with a virus, for instance, animals could be housed together. And if there was a time after challenge that you needed to diagnose the animals, need to see what their viral levels were, then maybe they would be separated. But in the end, then they would be socialized again for the remainder of the experiment. So we're doing a whole lot more of that than either one way or the other. I'd say one important difference in the management of animals that are inside and on these research studies is that we reinforce the need for a relationship with people, their care staff. And so in indoor housed research animals, we encourage a greater level of human-animal interaction. And we know that this is important to the quality of life for the animals receiving clinical care or undergoing research procedures, and it helps to reduce any stress associated with these procedures. So we really encourage that, and it is part of our program. We call it the animal-human interaction. I just wanted to briefly mention, too, I mean, for those that don't know, I, had, I was fortunate enough to spend last summer down at the Tulane National Primary Research Center. And it was truly fascinating to see all the, the amount of effort and work that went into just the behavioral management, maintaining social hierarchies and structures and all that. And I'd never seen that before working in live animal, different positions for the last 10 years. Again, I haven't really worked a lot with non-human primates either, but I had never seen the amount of effort that went in from videotaping them to making sure that you know, there's and no abnormal behaviors going on to creating these unique enrichment devices and things called destructibles that they would get and get to d- destroy for the just daily, you know, everyday enrichment. Could you just say a little bit too about some of that behavioral management? I know you touched on it a little bit, but just why that's so important for maintaining a high level of health and welfare standards for these monkeys, which ultimately also affects the research. You know, Jeff, in your experience here, you'd probably agree that um, you could dedicate several podcasts to speaking about behavioral management. And <laughs> yeah. Rights. yeah, and I actually would like to eventually have a whole <laughs> podcast dedicated to it if we could. So maybe down the road one day. Yeah, and we'd be happy to do that. We've got uh, some experts here that would be glad to do that. It is a really important component of our program and any program that works with non-human primates. It's a very complex operation and critically important to both animal health and for research. And, you know, some of your previous guests have discussed healthy animals are critical for the generation of consistent reproducible data. And we can't forget that uh, with non-human primates, especially behavioral health or psychological well-being is as critical as physical health. So our program here at the Primate Center is a team effort and involves a lot of different people. You talked about the team of the behavioral management staff, but also includes our colony management personnel and our veterinarians and our animal care technicians, and all are trained to recognize and interpret macaque behavior. That's an integral part of our early onset training when when we get new employees and a part of our continuing education throughout the year. And, you know, our management practices are guided by decades of experience, the scientific literature and our own research. And this is referred to as evidence-based management. And the reason evidence-based management is so important in behavior is humans, we tend to anthropomorphize and we attribute what we like and how we feel to non-human primates. And on many occasions, we've seen our initial hypotheses disproved. And I think one of those in particular involves what we call protected contact housing. So Full contact means animals are available to each other all the time. 
And protected contact mean there's a panel between the cage and they can reach through either with fingers or even arms, depending on how big the, uh, the areas are in the panel. And so it was our hypothesis that if a, if a research scientist wanted animals separated, that there would be some benefit, at least some benefit to doing protected contact housing versus just separating them completely. But what we found actually was that this caused some anxiety and some aggression. And it was, we call it the phantom limb hypothesis, where if an animal sees just an arm coming through a panel, that might be a little bit scary to them. So it was one of those things that surprised us that we thought we were actually getting some benefit. And so we modified our program. And I think that's really, really important that people understand that we don't, our approach is not just to throw a toy in a cage or try something new because we think it's going to work. We do it in a limited fashion and we collect data and we assess the data because we want to do things that are going to improve uh, their welfare and not things that we think are going to improve their welfare. Yeah. I mean, there was a whole system. I mean, when I was there, yeah, just real quick, just, I mean, so I can totally attest to all of that. I got to go out a couple of times and we had clickers like you use for dogs when you're training your dog to, and we had clickers for the monkeys. And then sometimes we got to go out and just sit there into the breeding colony and watch just some with the behavioral management group. And it felt like you're in the middle of the jungle. I think it was actually raining that day that I was out there. And so it was overcast and you just hear all the sounds <laughs> of the monkeys around you. So it was really cool. I was just going to kind of follow up since we are, you know, getting towards the end of this episode. Um, we've been asking all of our guests sort of in your personal life outside of work, how do you explain what you do for a living if you're, you know, talking to some a stranger or, you know, someone in your family who maybe doesn't know the full details? Do you bring up the animal research component? Do you get interesting reactions? Sort of how do you handle that outside of your work? That's a really good question. I know that uh, everybody who works in this field has to deal with that and grapple with what they're going to say if they're asked. And I always think back to uh, when I was in private practice and I had accepted the job at the primate center. I told one of my favorite clients who did a lot of work in animal rescue and adoption was perplexed that I was leaving practice to experiment on animals or her words. And what perplexed her is that, that she had seen me as a caring veterinarian and was sure that everybody working in animal research were uncaring. And the reason I bring that up is because it was my first personal experience in seeing how ingrained the negative public perception was about animal research. And I'd been working with this individual for two years, and yet they wondered about you know, my commitment to animal welfare because I was going to uh, laboratory animal medicine. Fortunately, I was able to discuss the issues openly, and, and I don't know whether I ever convinced her of all the benefits of animal research. But she did understand that I was going to bring the same level of caring to my new position as I did with her animals. And, uh, you know, I think this point is missed by many. Veterinarians go into the field because they care about animals. And as I mentioned earlier, I moved to laboratory animal medicine because I wanted to continue to help animals, but also benefit human health. So specifically, how do I answer these questions when I'm asked? I think today I'm, I'm much more able to address questions and feel a lot more comfortable because I've simply had a lot of practice. Earlier in my career, I had to rely on statistics and what I read in the literature about the benefits of animal research. But over the years, I've had a number of positive experiences, seen real improvements to animal health and care and the overall welfare in the research setting. And I've personally been involved in technical refinements to improve welfare. And as an administrator, I've facilitated programs in behavioral management that have greatly improved the well-being of non-human primates. So all of these personal experiences made it really easier for me to discuss my part in animal research and the benefits of animal research to animals and man. And so for me, 
I am very happy to address that question directly and tell people what I do and how things have improved and will continue to improve. And so I know it's not that easy for everybody though that haven't had the same experiences. Yeah, I do think transparency is helping us improve just being able to talk outright about what goes on in the lab animal world. I think it's important, especially with this podcast. I think it's helping people kind of talk outside of their comfort zone and kind of finally hear what really goes on behind closed doors when it's really a fantastic industry. Yeah. Yes. All right, Dr. Baum. Well, I mean, that's all we really have for you. Do you have anything for us? Do you have any final thoughts? Anything that you want to make sure that you know, our audience hears from you or about the National Primate Research Centers that we haven't already discussed before we wrap this up? There's just one thing that I'd like to add, though. We often describe our care of research animals to the public in ways that point out that research animals are protected under the law and the field of animal research is highly regulated. And this does help the public understand that we are required to provide excellent care and that research animals are protected by the law. But what is important to convey, I think, in addition to that, is that all of us in research have an ethical responsibility to minimize pain and distress that research animals experience. And and I believe that at times the public may feel the only reason we demonstrate compassion for animals is because we are required to by the law. As I said before, in working in the field for 30 years, I've seen the care provided to research animals in different settings and know that the care we provide is based on more than the regulatory requirements. In the Division of Veterinary Medicine here at Tulane, our philosophy is that we care for animals by addressing their needs, but we just as importantly care about animals and their welfare. And so I think those are really important points to make. There are regulations and those protect the animals, but we certainly do care about the animals that we really care for. Yeah, thanks for making that point. That's super important. Um, and I 100% agree. And we've tried to you know drive that point home on previous episodes too. So I appreciate you for coming on the show today and talking to us and getting the word out about the National Primate Research Centers and everything you guys do and specifically down there at Tulane. Danielle, did you have anything else before we get into some final notes here? No, I think we were just going to tell our listeners again about the giveaway that we have going on. Yep. So we still have five $100 Amazon gift cards that we're going to be giving away to five lucky listeners. All you need to do to enter this giveaway is go online to iTunes or Podchasers or Apple Podcasts and leave a review, rate and review the show. And down the road, we will pick five people and we'll announce them through social media. We'll announce them on the show. So make sure you follow us on Twitter at the Labrat Chat. And our Gmail account is labratchat at gmail.com. And we have a Facebook page. And email, email entries count also, correct? Is that what we've been saying? Yeah, you can email as well. We'd prefer that if you could review the show, just it's going to help increase the visibility of the show and get it out there to more people. So we'd prefer that you could rate and review it if you could. And you can put, I mean, even Facebook and everything too, share it with your friends if you can. So we're going to try to keep this show going for as long as we can. Because like we said, we have plenty more topics we could talk about just from the show itself, just from today's episode. And there's also a newsletter. We created a newsletter. So if you go to the uh, Americans for Medical Progress page, our library chat page there, I'll put it in the show notes. You can sign up for a monthly or not even monthly newsletter. It's more of like an episode based newsletter where we'll send out the show notes and tell you what each episode's about. And we'll also announce our giveaways through that as well. So yeah, share it with everyone you know, rate and review it, help, help get the show out there. And again, thank you, Dr. Bohm today for coming on the show and sharing all of this great knowledge with all of our guests. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. 